Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For more than two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who in their research and studies contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. The U.S. federal government has long recognized the importance of deriving actionable insights from curated data to inform policy development, measure progress, and judge effectiveness of government programs. Following the enactment of the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2018, also known as the Evidence Act, every federal government agency must now formulate and institute processes for collecting, analyzing, and sharing data to support evidence-based decision-making. What is government analytics? How are U.S. federal government agencies using analytics to achieve outcomes? And what challenges do agencies face in expanding the use of analytics? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Dr. Jennifer Bachner, Director of the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at Johns Hopkins University and author of the IBM Center Report, Optimizing Analytics for Policymaking and Governance. Jen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Jen, would you start off telling us about the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2018, what we commonly know as the Evidence Act? What are the key requirements of this law? Sure. Well, this is a law that was passed by Congress that requires federal agencies to develop statistical evidence to use as part of their policymaking and rulemaking processes. The overarching purpose of the law is to facilitate data-driven decision-making in government, and through that, to improve the policymaking and program valuation functions of the agencies. There are several key provisions of the act. The first one that is uh, quite important is that each agency must submit a plan annually to OMB. And this plan should detail how the agency will use evidence for policymaking. The plan might include questions that the agency will answer using statistical evidence, and it might also list data that the agency plans to collect and methods and approaches that they will use to analyze that data. There are also some provisions of the Act that address open data, and in particular, the Act uh, states that agencies must make non-sensitive data available to the public in accessible ways, so the data should be machine-readable and it should be shareable. Um, in addition, GSA must publish a catalog of government data such that the public can explore this catalog and use government data in a meaningful way. So the Act also creates several new positions at uh, federal agencies. For example, it specifies that certain agencies must all have a chief data officer. And in fact, every agency, I believe, must have a chief data officer. Um, this is a C-suite level position in the government context. And this is a person who oversees everything data-related that goes on at an agency, including governance, data quality, analysis, and communication. Um, in addition, there are some agencies that are required to have an evaluation officer. 
who, which is someone who leads evidence building efforts across the agency and oversees the evaluation activities going on at the agency. Um, and thirdly, agencies must have a statistical official, which is someone who oversees data quality, ensures that privacy standards are being met, and serves in an advisory capacity, uh, providing guidance on statistical approaches and techniques that can be used for analysis. And then there are a few others. In particular, there are some provisions that address privacy and confidentiality issues. So, Jen, as a follow-up, perhaps you could share with us the key aspects of the accompanying guidance on this law issued by the Office of Management and Budget, OMB. Yes, the guidance is critical for understanding how this act will be implemented, and it's been very helpful as agencies try to put in place the provisions outlined in the Evidence Act. So the guidance emphasizes the importance of using evidence-based decision-making for advancing agencies' mission. And it notes that this approach is relevant to all agencies in government, not just the big ones. So it, it emphasizes that all agencies across the federal government should be using evidence-based decision-making. Uh, the guidance explains that agencies should work uh, to develop an analytic culture. And by, by this, the guidance explains that an analytic culture is an atmosphere where learning and evidence are valued and they're appreciated for their role in improving outcomes. And the focus should really be on using data and evidence because they help government be better and to serve the citizenry better, not just because doing so is a matter of compliance with a law. In the guidance, there's also a discussion about the role of program evaluation, and it explains how the rigorous and scientific assessment of programs by every agency is essential for good government. Um, the guidance also builds in a lot of flexibility for agencies. The, the main emphasis of the guidance is that agencies should think seriously and creatively about how they can build and use evidence. The guidance encourages things like pilot projects, it encourages both qualitative and quantitative research. It suggests that agencies implement risk assessments and other scientifically sound approaches for developing evidence that will support their decision making. Well, those are two good ways to sort of set the context around your report for the IBM Center, Optimizing Analytics for Policymaking and Governance. So one of the ways you conducted or did your research was the creation of the Government Analytics Breakfast Forum. I'm wondering what prompted that creation of the forum and who participated in those events? This has been a great experience. We partnered with REI Systems in 2014 to create a forum for discussing how government agencies are using analytics. The goal of the forum has been to cultivate a community where participants can learn about what their peers are doing in government, as well as government adjacent organizations like government consulting firms and contract firms. The speakers at our events uh, are typically chief, chief data officers, chief information officers, chief risk officers, or other leaders in the field who describe their organization's approach to using analytics. And they typically present some examples of what has worked well. And sometimes they also describe what has not worked well. The events are free, they're open to the public, and our attendees include both professionals who are working in government analytics, as well as students who are in the Johns Hopkins Data Analytics and Policy Program. They're always live streamed so that anyone in the world can participate, and we include a, the, the speaker usually presents at the beginning of, the, of, of each event, but we leave a lot of time for discussion so that the group can share their experiences and perspectives with each other. 
And it's really been fascinating to see the variation across agencies in terms of the approaches that are being used, the tools that are being used, and the, the types of questions that they're trying to answer. The SEC, for example, has been exploring the use of machine learning methods for fraud detection. Uh, the IRS has been using risk assessment techniques to analyze its hardware at, as well as their software because they're trying to identify areas that are most in need of upgrading. And overall, we've seen that agencies are using text analysis in particular more and more for tasks like analyzing public comments and also analyzing uh, requests for proposals, RFPs, to a variety of things, but as one example, to ensure that they're Section 508 compliant, meaning that they include provisions that ensure accessibility. That's terrific. And I want to stay on this topic and delve a little bit deeper into the methodology you used for your report. And, and as a follow-up, can you tell us more about uh, that method and what was the twofold purpose of the government analytics survey? Well, after hosting many of these government analytics breakfast forums and hearing from so many leaders in the space, we realized that there was no systematic data collection effort that had been undertaken to track how government is using analytics and the challenges that folks are encountering. So we decided to conduct a survey to learn about two things in particular. First, we were interested in understanding the ways in which government is using analytics, meaning the tools, methods, software, modes of disseminating findings, all of the specifics about how government is using analytics. And second, we wanted to understand the value that government agencies are obtaining from analytics. We wanted to know, in particular, how are analytics helping agencies advance their missions? And are there any hurdles hindering their use of analytics for decision making? So we conducted two iterations of the survey, one in 2019 and one in 2021, and we are currently in the process of the third iteration. Going forward, we hope to continue using the survey to better understand how the government is implementing the Evidence Act. And also we would like to understand how new analytical approaches like AI and machine learning are affecting policy outcomes. You mentioned from the forum, uh, Jen, in your, in your report, um, certain ways that uh, government agencies are using analytics to address meaningful public sector challenges. Perhaps you could highlight some of those. Sure, there are so many great examples of how agencies are using analytics to advance their missions. As one example, we had a speaker who discussed how TSA is using analytics to assess threats, vulnerabilities, and risk. And then they evaluate the extent to which a particular mitigation measure would address each of these three aspects of security. We heard from the Millennium Challenge Corporation and the speaker from this organization discussed how they are using analytics to determine which countries are best situated to receive aid from the U.S., and then how that aid impacts development in those countries. So there's both a sort of forecasting component and then an evaluation component. We um, also learned at the forum that the Library of Congress has used analytics to develop an organizational modernization strategy uh, because they want to best serve the needs of their patrons. So the library obtained data on users' familiarity with different types of technology and their use of various library materials. And it's, the library has used this information to guide its next steps for making improvements. We've also seen that agencies are using analytics to improve their internal processes so that they function better as organizations. 
For example, the CFPB has collected data on its uh, IT services group, including data from their help desk, because they wanted to determine which issues were arising on a consistent basis. They then developed a plan for addressing these issues more proactively and uh, had the effect of reducing IT call volume, which has saved everybody across the agency time, and it has allowed employees to focus their efforts on other tasks. And we can see that analytics are truly being used by nearly every agency in every policy area, including education, defense, and, and the Library of Congress, as I mentioned. I, I truly can't imagine an area where analytics would not be valuable. Uh, but I do want to say that I, I don't mean to suggest that analytics should replace all other approaches to decision making or that analytic results should not receive the same scrutiny, scrutiny as any other decision input. It's, but I do think that analytics can be extremely valuable and lead to better outcomes. That's a wonderful segue. So based on the survey data, I was wondering, what did you find were the impacts of automation on the collection and use of data within federal agencies. And perhaps, Jen, you could share with us some examples of what's happening in federal agencies in this area. Sure, well, in our survey, we found that analysts are now spending most of their time interpreting results and communicating findings to leaders. And they're spending less time gathering and validating data. And we suspect that this is because so much of data collection has become automated and because uh, data sharing across agencies is much improved. So agencies are not duplicating data collection efforts that are being conducted by other organizations, and there's very little manual data entry being undertaken these days, which we think is a good thing. Uh, because data collection has also become much better at the state and local levels, there is a better flow of information across levels of government, which is also a very good thing. Uh, this is all to say that government now has a lot of excellent data at hand, and it is being stored and shared in easy-to-read files. And this has given analysts more time to spend analyzing data, making sense of it, uh, rather than spending so much of their time collecting and cleaning data. And this doesn't mean that there are not still key gaps in data collection. And I think the pandemic has highlighted some of these gaps. We are missing data on where in-person learning took place, for example, data on vaccination rates isn't great in all areas. But nonetheless, government has more data now than it ever has before. And I think that agencies see the key challenge now to figure out how to make sense of all of it and to communicate the results from their analyses. What is government analytics and how are government agencies using analytics? We'll explore these questions and so much more when our conversation continues on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use this center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. What is the value of intergovernmental data sharing? What are the challenges to sharing data across government? And how can we advance intergovernmental data sharing? Today, we'll explore these questions and more with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Silo Busting, 
the challenges and success factors for sharing intergovernmental data. Jane, your recent report for the IBM Center, silo busting the challenges and success factors for sharing intergovernmental data. I was wondering what prompted your interest in this area and how did you conduct your research? Well, thanks for asking, because I feel like if I have a superpower, it's curiosity. And it was really curiosity that got me into this topic. And, you know, I have another report that I did for the IBM Center a couple of years ago, and it started the same way with wondering, wow, what can I read about this topic? And the topic being getting beyond the awesome innovations in data that we see that exist in just one entity, but thinking about when we most powerfully make change in government, it's when we span boundaries, right? So you can't really solve homelessness just by thinking about where will the person sleep tonight, but you think about what kind of job can I get that person? Do they need health? Do they need mental health? You know, and it's like a really complicated puzzle solving. And I thought, how are we using data to do that? And I wanted to read what someone else wrote, but I couldn't really find this um, piece that I wanted to read. And so that's how I decided to pursue this topic of research on my own and just look for what are the great examples? Because they're out there, but there aren't there weren't enough of them. And so I thought the purpose of this paper is to shine a light on some great successes so that we can let people know, hey, it's possible. It's kind of hard, but it's doable. And let's try to amplify and do some more. So, Jane, that's a wonderful segue. I'm wondering, um, how can the federal government establish funding capacity building mechanisms that support implementation of increased data sharing across government? Well, I think one of the things is just to listen to each other. And, you know, interagency, intergovernmental agency councils around data could just be a source of asking questions, listening, ideas ideation. And, um, you know, when feds listen to state and local government, they can really uh, get outside their own boxes. And I think that's enormously important. And especially, you know, I, I think we can use the current pandemic, both the health and the economic and the racial disparity aspects. And we can use those as a lens for thinking about like, well, how do we bring systems of data together to better understand the enormously complex, you know, the social determinants of health that are perhaps at play in some of the higher risk neighborhoods uh, for the pandemic. The thinking about how do we get education and workforce and unemployment, like how do we get housing and, you know, even air quality, like all these different factors that are at play in the hotspots of unemployment and um, COVID disease. So interagency uh, government data consoles, I think would be really, uh, really important and providing incentives for standard data sharing practices, right? So um, in Massachusetts, there were, I don't know, 40, 50, there were like way too many different templates for data sharing agreements. And when we had this uh, opioid crisis a few years ago and had to come up with data sharing agreements that would span 23 agencies, 
they actually came up with a standard template for sharing data. And um, they went from having, you know, the average time to reach an agreement taking half a year to being able to do it with one standard agreement, you know, again, 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 and just, uh, you know, dramatically increased the speed of sharing. And I think that's something, that's a model that, you know, some places have now got that in place, uh, like Commonwealth of Virginia has a wonderful standard uh, way of sharing data. Um, And I think that what we need to do is, is replicate and, you know, if every state and local government could come up with standard data sharing agreements, it would rapidly speed the flow of data across the silos. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Dr. Jennifer Bachner, author of the IBM Center Report, Optimizing Analytics for Policymaking and Governance. So, Jen, what is government analytics and what's the purpose? What purpose does it serve? Well, government analytics is the use of quantitative methods by public sector organizations as well as government adjacent organizations to develop insights and actionable recommendations from data. And the purpose of government analytics is to help public agencies better advance their missions through better decision-making. Analytics can help agencies function better as organizations, and they can serve as valuable inputs to the policymaking process. Analytics can help leaders see what's working and what's not in terms of government programs. They can also help identify risks, such as those in the area of defense and health and education. And when an agency has a good handle on risks, it can evaluate the use of potential mitigation measures. So overall, government analytics is the development of exactly the sort of information identified in the Evidence Act as being essential to sound policymaking. That's terrific. So as a follow-up, you point out in your report that a data strategy that focuses on the end goal has proven to be more effective if it also benefits from backward thinking. I'm wondering if you can explain that insight and perhaps highlight agencies that have followed such a model or approach. 
Yes. Well, at the beginning of the data boom, which people say was around the early 2000s, the focus was on collecting data. And uh, this was when hardware could finally handle storing and analyzing large data sets. And as the Internet of Things has developed over the past two decades, data collection has become easier and easier since so many of our devices can now collect and store and transmit data. This includes our phones, tablets, cars, street cameras, watches, and so much more, sometimes even refrigerators. So everyone wanted to collect data and not a lot of thought was given to whether that data would be useful. Now, however, that data has become so much easier to collect, and as there are so many data collection tools and processes in place, analysts have started thinking more about how they can use the data that is available, and they are spending less time thinking about what new data they can collect and how to collect it. So in government agencies, analysts are now adopting a backward thinking model, meaning they're focusing on the end user of any new data-related project rather than focusing primarily on just the data collection piece. So in other words, rather than designing projects around the use of a new data set or a new tool, analysts are thinking about the needs of the end user and thinking through how they can meet those needs. Maybe the agency already has data um, that can answer a question at hand, or and maybe that data just needs to be reformatted or merged with data from another agency. Or maybe a simple econometric analysis is all that's needed to answer a question rather than a sophisticated AI or machine learning approach um, paired with the collection of millions of additional pieces of data. So analysts are appropriately giving more thought to the substantive questions that need answering and who will use the analytic outputs rather than focusing on collecting more and more data in and of itself. And this has been a guiding principle at many of the agencies that have presented at our government analytics breakfast forum. Leaders at the CFPB um, emphasize this. This is, of course, a relatively new agency, and they've been careful to design their analytics unit as one that supports the substantive needs of the agency. When they think about new projects, they are highly focused on ones that are feasible, that are sustainable and valuable in terms of mission alignment. For example, one of the big projects at the organization was to develop a self-service business intelligent platform that allows employees to access data and tools directly. The CFPB is currently working now on a cloud computing strategy so that they can supplement this business intelligence platform with AI and machine learning tools that will also be accessible to employees across the Bureau. That's great. And I mean, that, that kind of follows up my next question, which was around over the past decade, um, we've seen investments in government analytics yield observable and meaningful successes. I was wondering to what extent uh, can you highlight some of these successes within the agencies and what ways do analytics create value for these agencies? Well, our survey showed that there are several real successes we've seen from investments in government analytics. And the first is good data. So there were approximately 38% of our respondents who expressed a very high level of confidence in the data being promulgated by their agencies, whereas 43% expressed some confidence and only 5% expressed concern about their agency's data. The experts that we spoke with echoed these findings. They described how their organizations are now spending more time analyzing data, less time collecting it. And when leaders or other staff expressed an interest in expanding their organization's data collection efforts, the team first addressed three questions before jumping in. They wanted to know what is the real world value from this proposed data set? What is the feasibility of scaling the data set? In other words, 
is the data collection proposal one that can be expanded if it proves successful? And third, what is the sustainability of the project? In other words, can the collection effort be repeated to create a time series or is it only a one-off project? So I would say good data is the first big success that we've observed. Um, another big success of government analytics has been the documented value add to policymaking. 57% of respondents to our survey indicated that their agency's use of analytics has led to improved mission achievement. And there are several key ways in which analytics has been creating value for agencies in this context. First, uh, analytics has provided useful context for important decisions. Again, experts in this area note that analytical results need not be nor should not be the only decision inputs, but they provide tremendous value in helping decision makers understand the effects of programs and policies um, and think through the potential impacts of any proposed programs and policies. And second, analytics have pr produced important efficiencies in government agencies. They've helped automate many time-consuming processes. Uh, for example, at GSA, analysts have used machine learning models to examine whether solicitations for new technology comply with accessibility regulations. I noted that earlier. And second, as another example, the FTC has been using similar methods to summarize millions of public comments that they've received in order to develop an accurate picture of the public's opinions and sentiments toward proposed rules and regulations. In fact, analytics have increased the efficiency of operations so much that some people have raised the question of whether their budgets will be cut in response to these efficiencies. But not to worry, leaders in the field have not observed this happening. Um, it's, it's actually the opposite. The successes of government analytics have proven the value of these investments and therefore invited more investment rather than less. Yeah, you mentioned in your report, which I thought was very important, the, the critical importance of leadership buy-in uh, to the success of any government analytics effort. And I'm wondering, in your research, do you have any suggestions uh, on how best to obtain that leadership buy-in? Absolutely. It can certainly seem daunting to secure buy-in from agency leaders who are experienced with decision-making using alternative approaches. But there are several ways that analytics leaders can make a strong case. First, they can directly address the concerns and the hesitations expressed by senior leaders. It's natural to be skeptical of change, and it's actually quite a good thing to be skeptical of statistical findings. But analytical leaders can explain that an increased reliance on analytics for decision-making is, as one of the experts I spoke with put it, it's an evolution, not a revolution. Data-driven decision-making is not a 180-degree turn away from other approaches, but it's actually a supplement to other methods. And decision-makers should be invited to approach analytics with the same skepticism that they would apply to any other information. Second, analytics leaders can help secure buy-in by delivering analytic findings in a timely manner. In other words, they should get relevant results to the right people well before a decision needs to be made because this gives leaders time to digest that information and ask any questions that they have. It reduces pressure and it increases trust. And third, analytics leaders should work to build bridges between agency leaders and junior staff. And they should highlight the value of each. Agency leaders are needed to set a vision for the organization. They're the ones who identify the key questions that need answering. Junior staff, on the other hand, are typically most up to date on the best tools and methods that can be used to answer these key questions. 
So agency leaders can provide strategic guidance while junior staff can highlight what is possible to learn using analytic tools and techniques. So ensuring that everyone appreciates the value that others bring to the analytic process can help establish a culture in which data-driven decision-making thrives. That's great. You know, Jen, what I struck me about your report was it dedicated some some sections to emerging tools and technologies in government analytics. And I'd like to shift to that topic and, and ask you from your research, uh, what are the most promising emerging technologies at the forefront of government analytics? How are things like artificial intelligence and machine learning tools being used? And are there any significant variation in the specific tools and emerging technologies being used in today's um, government agencies? In our survey, most respondents viewed AI and machine learning as holding the most promise for the future of government analytics. These tools are not being are not commonly being used on a large scale in most government agencies, but many agencies are experimenting with pilot projects to explore applications for their use. As an example, the Health Resources and Services Administration is using AI and machine learning methods to collect and analyze patient level data that would help them identify the most vulnerable or folks who are most vulnerable to certain health conditions and who would therefore be most likely to benefit from particular interventions. These tools could track patients using de-anonymized tools such that individuals' privacy is secure. And as I noted earlier, many agencies are using text analysis more and more, which is a type of machine learning because they're looking to glean insights from public comments, from government solicitations, from company filings, and other documents that the government regularly collects from individuals and entities. Agencies are also exploring the use of cloud computing, which is often required for analyses of big data sets using AI and ML methods. There's been an explosion of platforms and tools that are available in this space. So it will it's going to take some time for government analysts to get a handle on what makes sense for their organization, depending on their needs. And I think that collaborative groups, such as the Council of Chief Data Officers and the Council of Chief Evaluation, Evaluation Officers, will be particularly helpful for sharing this kind of information. They'll be able to share with each other what is working well and what isn't in terms of using AI and machine learning to improve policymaking. What challenges do federal government agencies face in using analytics and how can they overcome them? We'll explore these questions and so much more when our conversation continues on this special edition of the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the Center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. What is predictive policing? How does it complement traditional policing methods? And what are some of the operational challenges to implementing predictive policing? We will explore these questions and the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics, with its author, Jen Bachner, from the Center for Advanced Government Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Why is decision-making in all sectors of society increasingly driven by data and analytics 
and how are business leaders and public servants increasingly leveraging the data and analytics? Well, today it's easier than ever before to collect, store, and analyze data, which is why you see an increase in data-driven decision-making. With respect to data collection in the retail sector, for example, it has been inexpensive for a few years now for a retailer to track your purchases in physical stores, through loyalty cards, and items you browsed online. Today, retailers are even able to take the next step by tracking your movements within a store through cell phone location data. So making predictions about what a person is likely to purchase in the future becomes a lot easier as the amount of data increases. In addition, software programs like SPSS Modeler allow analysts who may not be experts in the underlying math to still develop sophisticated predictive models. To to answer the second part of your question, uh, business and government leaders are leveraging data and analytics for several purposes, including evaluating whether a program or policy has achieved its goals, identifying future needs related to human capital, and predicting future behavior, whether that's customer behavior or criminal behavior. There are three categories of, of analysis techniques that police departments use to predict crime, Jen. Would you elaborate on each of these categories, the type of analysis commonly undertaken, and the advantages and disadvantages? Of each? Sure. So, one of the most commonly used methods of predictive policing is the creation of maps that indicate locations that are likely to experience heightened levels of crime in the future. Often, these maps take the form of hotspot maps, which you may have heard of. Hotspots are often determined by the distribution of crimes that occurred in the past, with more recent crimes being weighted more heavily. A second class of methods includes those that employ measures of both time and space. For example, crime analysts can use analytics to examine the path a serial criminal has taken and predict his or her next move. So this is useful when trying to predict the next target of a serial offender. A computer algorithm takes into account the times and locations of the crimes committed and generates a prediction about the location of the next likely offense. Police can then station themselves at that location and hopefully intercept the offender. A third class of methods includes those that involve the analysis of social networks. A criminal's social network might include his friends, family members, victims, and even business associates. A police department might perform a social network analysis to cut off a suspect's social resources, as the Richmond Police Department did. Or it might use the network to determine the best person through which to communicate information to a suspect. Each of these classes of methods has advantages and disadvantages, which you noted. Um, Hotspot mapping, for example, is relatively straightforward, and therefore it's an accessible form of analysis. The output from this type of analysis is quite simple. I mean, it's just a map that clearly indicates the locations that are likely to experience crime in the future. So with a fairly small amount of training, officers can incorporate these maps into their daily decision-making. The downside of this approach, however, is that it doesn't really leverage much of the data that's becoming available to police departments. The advantage of a social network analysis is that it can be tremendously useful for answering questions about how to isolate an offender or how to transmit information to an offender. One of the disadvantages of a social network analysis is that the researcher has to make a lot of subjective decisions, such as deciding which individuals to include and which to exclude from the social network. It can also be difficult to collect enough information about a suspect's social network to construct a complete network. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. 
How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Dr. Jennifer Bachner, author of the IBM Center Report, Optimizing Analytics for Policymaking and Governance. You know, despite the measurable progress, which you outline in your report around government analytics and its use, there are many challenges which you don't shy away from. And I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the more significant challenges facing the use and application of government analytics at agencies? Yes, I would say that there are three big challenges that emerge in our survey as ones that are facing the field. And these would be, number one, an underinvestment of resources. Number two, we saw many uh, respondents express concern about the difficulties with recruiting and retaining analytics staff. And three, uh, building staff knowledge as the field of government analytics continues to advance. That's terrific. And I, I want to talk about, you know, if you could highlight for us, Jen, the three pieces of advice for uh, from the public sector leaders for those looking to increase investment, which is essential in analytic resources. Exactly. Well, 50, uh, 56% of respondents to our survey believe that there is too little funding for analytics in government. Um that this is a big challenge facing the field. So to increase investment, experts suggest that that it is first important to demonstrate good stewardship. One of the best arguments that you can make for asking for more resources is to show that you're doing a great job using and managing the resources that you already have. To do this, you can focus on generating small wins rather than focusing too heavily on long-term projects with no short-term visible outcomes. So small and frequent successes are likely to generate more investment. At the same time, it's important for analytics leaders to recognize when a particular project or approach is not working and accept and learn from that failure rather than doubling down on something that's not going well. This is also evidence of wise management. Another way to make an argument for more investment is to conduct a gap analysis. With this type of analysis, you very clearly describe the gap between what's currently being done and what the vision is for the way things could be done. And this requires clearly specifying the tasks that need to be achieved and the human capital and infrastructure needed to accomplish those tasks, in addition to specifying a timeline expected for completion. And finally, analytics leaders should clearly communicate the value add of any new technology they're requesting. This point ties back to the theme that I've emphasized throughout our conversation, which is that analytics should be focused on advancing an organization's mission, and leaders should keep this top of mind whenever they're requesting new resources. 
you can't um, overstate the need for talent as well. And I, I want to switch gears to staff recruitment and retention efforts in the specialty field, if you will. What are some of the approaches being taken by agencies in the public sector to attract and retain talent? Well, leaders in the field tell me that one of the most useful things they can do to attract, uh, attract and retain staff is to offer them opportunities to use and develop their skill sets. New employees who are fresh out of, a, out of school or a training program have cutting edge skills and they're eager to use them and to keep them sharp. Agencies need to be able to offer these employees opportunities to apply their skills to meaningful challenges and stay at the frontier of the field through professional development. Part of this involves giving employees access to modern analytic tools and modern cloud computing tools. Attracting and retaining staff is in fact one of the biggest motivations behind leaders' efforts to tool up. And some have suggested uh, developing a rotation program for junior analysts in the federal government. This would provide analysts with opportunities for professional networking and skill development. This is because by serving in different analytics groups across government, analysts would have an opportunity to meet up their peers in the field and to learn about what agencies are doing in the analytics space. Offering analysts opportunities to experience different agencies and to learn from their counterparts might be of particular interest to analysts who are just starting their careers and might be the thing that leads them into government. You know, Jen, one of the biggest limiting factors you point out in your report in government analytics is identifying the knowledge gap between leadership, senior leadership in an agency, and the folks doing the analysis. Um, can you highlight any ways to address and ameliorate that kind of gap? Sure. Some experts have suggested that agencies implement a sort of reverse mentoring program where senior officials are paired with junior analysts such that the junior analysts could introduce their partner to new applications and methods. By explaining what we can learn through analytics, senior officials may be able to develop better questions and develop better initiatives for the agency. In addition, agencies may want to consider developing in-house training programs for both leaders and staff. These could be developed for leaders and staff to participate in together where they work on applied exercises, or you can imagine training programs that are tailored for either leaders or staff to learn about specific statistical techniques or applications. Agencies may even want to consider partnering with universities to develop these types of courses and workshops. I think there's a lot of room for, for more of these types of partnerships. You go from the, the those gaps and challenges and you, your research draws uh, a lot of lessons learned from across the survey and insights from public sector leaders. Um, you identify four big picture recommendations that the agencies could, should consider as they seek to develop robust and effective analytics teams. I'd like to explore the initial recommendation. Um, why is it important for agency leaders to craft an enterprise analytics strategy? And perhaps you could share with us the essential components of the strategy and who should do them. Well, an enterprise analytic strategy is important for aligning an agency's goals with those of the analytics group. So the strategy should detail proposed projects and approaches, and it should explain how these will advance the mission of the agency. So again, as I have sort of emphasized throughout our conversation, the focus of the analytics group should be on the mission of the agency. A chief data officer would be the person who would typically oversee the development of this strategy, which would of course be informed by the Evidence Act and OMB guidance. 
The strategy should lay out feasible and sustainable processes that will allow the analytics group to accrue small wins and communicate their results to leaders in a timely manner. It should also focus on developing a culture of data-driven decision-making where the development of statistical evidence is valued for its role in an agency's mission advancement. Again, rather than just, than just collecting statistical evidence to comply with a federal law. Organizing the analytics group as a central support unit may, might also be part of an analytics strategy. This is a, an approach that has worked well at several agencies, most notably the CFPB. Um, this approach allows analysts to support all arms of the agency with every step of the analytic process, from data collection to the presentation of results. So under this model, the analytics group essentially serves as an in-house consulting organization for the agency, and it works to support evidence-based decision-making across the enterprise. You know, Jen, you mentioned earlier um, the rise of self-service tools and models. I was wondering if you could take a little time to explain to us what they are and how can agencies move forward in developing, developing these models? Self-service tools allow employees to access data and tools directly rather than going through an analyst. In short, they remove the gatekeeping function of the analyst, which a lot of employees in an agency appreciate. Using these tools, employees can summarize and visualize data on their own. And as data literacy grows and the accessibility of these tools grow, the, these tools are proliferating in government and the private sector. These tools can also be used by the public to download and analyze government data. So I think that better self-service tools that facilitate public access to government data may help to build trust in government because it promotes transparency and it promotes accountability. Chief data officers who are working with their statistical officials can be the ones who take the lead on implementing these types of self-service tools in their agencies. Eugene, your third recommendation is around uh, the importance of communication. Uh, why is the ability to communicate results and their meaning the most underappreciated analytic skill? And what can agencies do to enhance that capability? Well, analytic results are meaningless unless they can be understood by decision makers. If you have a table that has 80 rows of numbers written in eight point font or a very dense visualization with 20 bars or has incomprehensible access labels, that's not helpful to leaders. Analysts need to be able to present their findings in well-written and well-formatted memos and reports that feature easy-to-read graphs and tables. Importantly, it's often the case that statistical findings can be explained clearly with well-designed tables and graphs. A good data storyteller will be able to explain the results of a complicated analysis in a way that is accessible to very broad audiences. So the key takeaway is that a great analyst must be a good statistician, but also very good at visualizing data and writing. Uh, chief data officers can work with their staff to create a culture that emphasizes the value of clear communication, both in terms of drafting um, accessible reports and memos, and also presenting the key analytic findings orally in presentations. That's terrific. And your fourth uh, recommendation in your report uh, calls for planning uh, AI and machine learning pilots. Why is it so important to do that? And what would it entail? And who should be involved in these efforts? 
Yeah, data analysts and, and data scientists can collaborate to propose AI pilot ideas. AI has enormous potential, but agencies are only beginning to explore the possible applications of these tools. And it would be wise to develop small scale projects that can highlight the value of AI for mission advancement. As always, analysts should align their proposed projects with agency goals and develop these projects, again, through a user-centric lens. In other words, the purpose of the projects should not be to use AI tools for their own sake, but to showcase how these tools can help agencies do their work better. That's terrific. So, you know, shifting gears a bit, Jen, uh, you may have mentioned this a little bit earlier, but to what extent has COVID-19, the pandemic, um, and our response to it underscored the difficulty and importance of discussing statistical findings in a manner that is precise, contextualized, and accessible? And why is that so critical? Well, the pandemic has certainly highlighted the extent to which any issue or any statistical finding can be interpreted through a political lens. And of course, the top leaders at government agencies are political appointees and are absolutely part of the president's administration. As everyone appreciates, they play an important role in advancing the president's agenda. Even leaders who uh, work at independent agencies are subject to political influence, though they are more insulated from executive power. But consider that many leaders at both executive and independent agencies hope to pursue their careers beyond their, their tenure as political appointees. So they have a very strong interest in cultivating a positive relationship with the administration. This isn't to say that agency leaders ignore analytic evidence, but they also cannot ignore the political landscape in which they're operating. For their part, I, analysts should keep their focus on developing the best evidence possible, though they might find it useful to stay apprised of key political considerations because that may be helpful when they're discussing the implications of analytic findings with agency leaders. That's great. So, you know, Jen, as you, as you uh, close the, the, the chapter on this, on this work you've done for us, uh, what does the future hold? in the continued evolution of government analytics in your perspective? I think there is so much room for growth in this field in terms of the type of analyses that can be undertaken and the way in which results are communicated. There's so much data being collected and we are really only beginning to leverage its value through analytics. I see so many students at Johns Hopkins in particular who are eager to learn analytics and programming. They're eager to learn how to use AI and machine learning methods. They're passionate, they're smart, and they care about making government and our society better. So I'm quite optimistic about the future of the field. That's great. I wouldn't mind asking you to, to talk about the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies. Can you tell us a little bit more about the mission of the center and your role in the center? Sure. So I direct the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at Hopkins. This is a an organization that has eight master's degrees and three certificates. So we have degrees that address security issues, intelligence. We have an MA in government program, a public management program, nonprofit, and a data analytics and policy program, which is the program that I formerly led. And so uh, students come to the center to learn about how they can help our society become better, how they can help government operate better, how they can help nonprofit organizations be better advocates for the interests that they care about. There's a lot of crossover. Our students take courses in other programs within the center so that they can 
tailor each degree to meet their needs and their career goals. Um, so there's a lot of synergy between the master's degrees that are a part of the center. We have courses that are on the cutting edge of the fields that cover analytics and uh, cutting edge topics related to security and intelligence. So it's a very vibrant place. The students are so dedicated, so passionate. And then we also host um, events outside of our master's degree programs. We have forums, speaker events. Uh, we have a simulation that's coming up in the next week in which students will gather here in DC, but also virtually to engage in a simulation where they'll work interactively to solve some challenges related to us in the security space. And that will be a great time for students to meet each other face to face as a lot of our programs are online and interact with each other and get to know each other. So I'm very much looking forward to that. That sounds terrific. I just had one more question, if you don't mind. Do you see a follow up to this report? Are you guys going to continue uh, engaging the community and see how the progress continues? I very much hope so. As I mentioned, we are in the third iteration of our survey and we've sent out emails about it. So I I hope that many of your listeners have received that because they happen to be on our contact list. And so I urge everyone working in the field to take this survey so that you can share your experience and perspective and opinions with us about government analytics. So we'll be gathering and analyzing those results shortly. And we hope to present those findings at an event that we will host either later this fall or perhaps in the new year. And then we do hope to continue administering this survey on an probably not annual, but maybe every other year or so to keep track of how things are changing, whether any of the current challenges are being addressed in a satisfactory way, and whether any new challenges are arising, what are some of the new tools that people are using in government, and how um, staff retention and attracting new staff is going, because this has clearly been a challenge that we've, we've seen in government. In addition, we plan to continue holding our Government Analytics Breakfast Forum, and we hope to move more of our events on site as we come out of the pandemic and get back to gathering in person to continue learning from each other about what government is doing in this field and how we can do what we do better using analytics. That's wonderful. Well, Jenna, I want to thank you for your report for the center. And most of all, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been great to have you back. Thank you. It's been great to be here. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Bachner, director of the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at Johns Hopkins University and author of the IBM Center Report, Optimizing Analytics for Policymaking and Governance. You can download this and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.
WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.